Well, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians and the first chapter. And the first, if you are using a pew Bible, if you wouldn't mind letting me know what page that's on so that all of us might together be enlightened. Ephesians chapter 1. 1159, page 1159. Thank you. And so I'll read verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord, and again we say, thanks be to God. Well, I want to welcome you to a new series that we are starting this morning. Having concluded our series on the Psalms, I want to begin over the next few months walking us through the book of Ephesians. Um, I thought for a long while about kind of where, where to change gears and, and kind of move to. I, I had my sights set on the New Testament. Some of you may know that some time ago we, we kind of put the pause button on a series on Ezekiel. Uh, I, I simply I was not convinced that that's where we needed to return to at this time. Uh, rather, um, I was, I, you might say, tempted in a good way by a number of different options. Uh, one of them, uh, a, a couple of you actually, have been urging me to go through Romans, which I take as a good sign that you mean to be present here for the next 15 years. Uh, that's, that's good. That's a glory. And, and was really thinking, it, it tends to be the case in, in Presbyterian and Reformed circles that Romans is like a pastor's swan song. Like, Romans is what you preach when you're on your way out of the door, and I am not on my way out of the door. And if I ever do start preaching through Romans, don't assume that. Um, but, um, all right, very good. <laughs> Thanks, Eddie. Uh, but, but more and more, I kept coming back to Ephesians again and again for... Uh, for a lot of reasons, and I'm not going to give you all of them this morning. We'll, I'll explain them as we go over the next few weeks. Uh, but I remember when I shared with Neil uh, that I, I was thinking about doing Ephesians, and Neil said, ah, Romans in summary form. And I said, I thought so too. Thank you for saying that. That was a perfect excuse to go through Ephesians. Uh, and so, and so we're, we're, we're doing, we're, we're doing the, the concentrated dose of Romans, if you like. Uh, And Ephesians is about many things, but I'm going to continually return to this idea of foundations for faithfulness. In a day where I think so much of the church has forgotten our primary foundations, our primary identity, or even our primary mission, what we're here for, we need to be reoriented if we mean to be able to face together whatever the future holds with faithfulness. So you may be familiar with the uh, with the quote from uh, Vince uh, Lombardi, and unfortunately, uh, Amir Hasek is out of town this morning. Amir always loves it when I use sports metaphors, uh, sports analogies and sermons. But Vince Lombardi addressed his, uh, addressed his team in the middle of the season. He held up the football and he said, gentlemen, this is a football, <laughs> right? Reminding them that apparently they needed to get back to basics if they were going to do well. And With that in mind, I think it would be good for us to do, as it were, a refresher in some foundations, and it's all in Ephesians. The first half of it being mostly concentrated theology, the latter half of it being what you might call application or the working out of that theology. 
And so, and it's written to Ephesus. More on that in a moment. But just know for the time being that Ephesus was, um, well, uh, it was not Branson, Missouri. Uh, it was not a sort of mostly uh, uh, a warm, you didn't have a sense that Ephesus was mostly a Christian place, quite the opposite. It was a city awash in paganism and unbelief. And on top of that, Paul writes this letter to the Christians in Ephesus from prison. And um, uh, so that's, that's the place that he's writing to. Right? A place where you'd be forgiven for despairing that there was any hope for the advancement of the gospel. And so the letters written by Paul and ancient letters started with the name, unlike our letters, we, we tend to close with the name, right? Yours truly, Brian, or whatever. Uh, ancient letters began with the name, uh, and today we will be covering the first two verses. And I know some of you are wondering, how will we fill the time? Don't you worry, we'll take care of it. There are at least three things I want you to see in the text this morning. I want you to see that our greatest need is to hear from God. I want you to see that our greatest problem in that is unfaithfulness. And I want you to see that our greatest hope, then, is the gift of the grace and the peace of our Lord Jesus. So these three things. Our greatest need is to hear from God. Our greatest problem is unfaithfulness. And our greatest hope is the grace and peace of God. So we begin at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And what we see here. Uh, I'm just going to do the first half of that first verse. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Okay, so Paul is telling them who he is and why they should listen to him. And two things are covered here. God's word and God's will. Now you might be looking at that saying, where do you see, I, I see God's will in there, by the will of God, but where do you see God's word? Okay, and the answer is when Paul calls himself an apostle. He is inviting you, as it were, to hear the Word of God. There is a distinction in the New Testament between a disciple and an apostle. I know sometimes we refer to the twelve apostles as the twelve disciples, and that's fine, but just know that there is a distinction. In fact, uh, during Jesus' ministry and after, there were lots and lots and lots of disciples. There were twelve apostles. There are many disciples. There are a limited number of apostles. Apostle, the, the Greek word is it's where we get the word from. The Greek word is just apostolos. Uh, it means sent one, one who is sent or sent out. And it carried a special connotation in the first century. So it, it's not a word that Paul made up. It's not a word that Christianity made up. An apostolos, before Paul was born, before Jesus uh, engaged himself in his earthly ministry, an apostolos was the guy that would get sent out on behalf of the king with a message. Usually it was a message of, say for instance, um, uh, 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 victory, but victory to the ones who had been conquered, right? And, and so the apostolos would come and, and, and announce, basically, you guys have lost, so this man is now your king, therefore uh, show your allegiance. And to disobey the apostolos was to disobey the king, because he was there on the king's behalf. You're starting to see why this might take shape as a, a specific office in the New Testament. It does seem, excuse me, I got ahead of myself, 
Uh, so it carried a special connotation in the first century, and in the New Testament is one that, who has been specifically commissioned by Jesus to lay the foundations of the New Testament church after his resurrection and his ascension. It does seem like a qualification for the job was to be an eyewitness of the ministry of Jesus. The reasons for this are, in the book of Acts, they choose a twelfth man to replace Judas. Interestingly, they're not commanded to do it, but they do it anyway. Um, The qualification is that he had to have had a share in Jesus' ministry, that he was an eyewitness. The other reason is that after the apostles of the first century died, there is no evidence anywhere that they were ever replaced. This seemed to be a special office for a special time. I am not here referring to the larger conversation about, say, uh, the uh, uh, charismatic gifts and, and gifts in the New Testament. I, I'm, I think that the Lord is free to exercise His glorious will in filling His people with His Holy Spirit and manifesting all different kinds of gifts. But I do think most Christians in all places and all times have considered this one the, the big exception. Uh, that if, if we're to say that any particular exercise of a gift came to an end after the New Testament, it was this one. Uh, Because after the apostles died, there was never any movement or action to replace them. Paul, by the way, was qualified for the job. He was an eyewitness of the risen Christ. That's why it's important to recognize his conversion moment uh, on the Damascus Road as not just something like a dream or a vision, but an actual face-to-face conversation with the risen, enfleshed Jesus Christ that resulted in him being blinded. But more important, the more important aspect of the work of the apostle, though, was that of an appointed messenger. When Paul says he's an apostle of Jesus Christ, he is saying that he's God's appointed messenger for this work. This is different from when Paul, for instance, in 2 Corinthians 5.20, calls all Christians ambassadors for Christ. To be an apostle means to represent Jesus so definitively that His words are Jesus' words. Okay? That His words are Jesus' words. This is why the letters, for example, of the Apostle Paul are divinely inspired. So, to keep moving. To say that he is an apostle of Jesus means he's speaking for Jesus. And so you might be wondering, that's all well and good. You've pretty well established to me, Brian, that I am not an apostle, based on what you just told me. And so, what does this have to do with me? The answer, of course, is that an apostle brings the Word of God. That's what it has to do with you. Therefore, we're dealing with the very words of God. We need to be reminded from time to time of the gift and weight and glory when we say, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Brian Chappell observes the following. He says, through the wisdom of his Lord, Paul provides a written record of God's message that is still available to us. So when we speak faithfully these truths, the word of God is yet ours. We may face opposition, resistance, and deprivation, but the knowledge that God is yet speaking to and through us means we are not dependent on our wisdom or our authority. Amen? (laughs) That's really good news. Whether we speak to our culture in the public arena or to a lost friend in a family room in the wee hours of the morning, 
God is still speaking His truth through us. We are not dependent on our words alone. He is, his word is here for us, and that is a source of strength when we face the limitations of our powers and the immensity of our challenges. So, the fact that an apostle is about to talk is good news because it means we're about to hear from God. So that is God's word. The second aspect of this is God's will. By the will of God, Paul says, he's been made an apostle. If he speaks by God's authority, then for heaven's sake he has the right to. But if he speaks by the will of God, then that means you and I have a responsibility to listen. There are some hard things in this letter. I'm just going to tell you. As we dive into it together, there are some texts that are difficult to understand and some texts that are going to make you mad. Okay, I mean, if, you, if you've got a pulse, and when you read it, you realize, I think that might be addressing me. There are some hard things in this letter. And Paul had to have the confidence from God to speak them. We have to be ready then to hear them. We have a hard time believing, believing that God has given us all we need for life and godliness. And why? I think part of the reason is, if we're honest, sometimes there is a paper-thin version of Christianity that I don't know if this paper-thin version of Christianity is explicitly taught, but it, it kind of just worms its way into our thinking if we're not careful. And it, it'll, it'll come out of our mouths in times when it really shouldn't, like times when we're, we're trying to care for a hurting person who's been through real, real hardship and suffering and affliction. And what comes out of our mouth might be something like, oh, take heart. God will never give you more than you can handle. <laughs> what? That is destructive. And what I think we have to be aware of is that if your version of Christianity basically amounts to a little paper-thin umbrella like Wiley e. Coyote holding that stupid little umbrella over him, you know, no covering at all. It'll be a lovely accessory until it starts raining. Until it starts raining. In this word, and I want to say, especially in this book, we will find more than a paper umbrella. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. This is in part why we are learning to sing the Psalms. These are the forgotten war songs of God's people meant to steady us when the way gets hard. Because God's promises were not primarily given for the days of comfort and ease. They were given for days of affliction. We sometimes fail to realize that. That's the, that's the paper umbrella philosophy. That we, 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 uh, we, we go to the Word, yes. We, we go to prayer, yes. But when things get really hard, that's sometimes when we start looking anywhere else. But the promises of God are for days of affliction. And our temptation is to seek, when, when things get really hard, is to seek every therapeutic avenue imaginable besides the Lord Jesus. And in so doing, we reveal the God we actually worship. So Paul speaks God's words. And he speaks them by God's will. And that's actually our greatest need. The greatest weapon we've been given in the fight before us and the fights that lie ahead of us that we don't even know about. The confidence that God has spoken. This God who speaks and acts. That is the hope that your heart and my heart need for today because the challenges before us are great. Our city is in many ways a greatly impoverished city. 
Not just physical or material poverty, though there is that, but also poverty of mind, as our education statistics are near the bottom of the country. Poverty of spirit, as false teaching fills our streets and our local television. Poverty of of will, poverty of strength, as an increasing number of young people are despising work and honest labor. It's actually going to be the, the new Wednesday night series that we're starting this week is, is on the Christian doctrine of work and the, the reclaiming of what used to be called a Protestant work ethic. I think it's just a biblical work ethic. And this is a poverty that is endured through generations, right? So that's no small dragon, that which is endured for generations. Where on earth will we get the confidence to speak to those things and to act as though they might change? To pray, to work, to speak so that our children and grandchildren might live to see a renewed rapids parish where we live with unlocked doors. Can you imagine it? A day when we will see economic flourishing that will make Lafayette and Baton Rouge jealous. A day when we will laugh about how people used to despise good work. A day when we will laugh about how we used to protect our laziness and our sloth. A day when other cities will come to us to learn how to find healthy homes for foster children. When we will see racial animosity and racial vainglory put to death and witness the rare glory of dividing walls coming down in the name of Jesus. A day where the rule of Christ will be acknowledged not just in churches, but in courthouses. You're afraid to believe it, aren't you? <laughs> I mean, doesn't that just sound astronomically wild in a sense where you're afraid, to, like you, you're almost like, Brian, it's your job to say utterly insane things like that that don't actually happen. We're afraid to believe it. I'm not saying the challenges before us are not real, brothers and sisters. Here, locally, or even nationally, there was a study done by the Lilly Foundation about a decade or so ago that just surveyed pastors of local churches. 30% of pastors said they felt they were doing well. 40% said they felt they were just muddling through, feeling largely ineffective, stuck, treading water in a hard place. 30% said they are barely hanging on, ready to quit. That means, if my math is right, 40 and 30, those latter two, 70% said they felt like they were either stuck or failing. That was in 2008. Do you reckon those numbers have gotten better? I'm not, I'm, this is not a, a autobiographical, by the way. I'm just relaying these statistics to you. At General Assembly last month, we heard that one study predicted that 50% of America's pastors will be bivocational. That's working two jobs within the next 10 years. So what do churches do? We lift up our heads and say with Mordecai, our brother, for such a time as this have we been placed here. For such a time as this has God given us children. For such a time as this has God given us neighbors and co-workers and family members who do not yet know the forgiveness of their sins. Paul lived in the midst of a very wicked culture, and he writes 
from prison, by the way, to people in the midst of a very wicked culture. Christians would have, I mean, Christians and their children, right? Their little children on the way to, to, to go to their tutor or whatever sort of educational method they had would have walked by the pagan temples and the cult prostitutes. They would have witnessed all kinds of idolatry and sin and godlessness. And into that, Paul speaks. Paul, who, who knew a thing or two about the radical change that the Lord Jesus can work, he says, I, an apostle of Jesus, by the will of God, have words for you today, now, in the midst of this mess. And so our greatest need is to hear from God. Second thing is our greatest problem is unfaithfulness. Look back at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul addresses the saints in Ephesus. The saints in Ephesus. The saints in Ephesus. Look, that's, that's a word that we've uh, uh, kind of lost, I think, to Romanism, unfortunately. We have a sort of construct sometimes that goes something like, well, over here you have your like ordinary boring Christians, right? And then over here you have your saints, right? No. No, no, that's absolute nonsense. The word in Greek is simply the adjective for holy. And when used to address a people, it means holy ones, people who are holy, ones who are holy, ones who are set apart, literally what that means, not by what you've done, but what Jesus has done. Now, your Bible might include a footnote here that some of the manuscripts of Ephesians don't contain the words in Ephesus. That's because this letter was probably meant for Ephesus and the churches surrounding it. If you think of uh, the churches that are mentioned in Revelation uh, in the first couple of chapters, Ephesus is one of them, and then there's kind of it's all these surrounding churches in Asia Minor. Probably Ephesians was a broad kind of general letter for all y'all, all these, all these churches in this, in this area. And so it would make sense that uh, probably what happened is the letter started in Ephesus, and then it would have been copied and sent to the other churches. And perhaps in the copying process, the in Ephesus bit was left out because it's not going to Ephesus anymore. It's going to Laodicea, it's going to Philadelphia, it's going elsewhere. So it is possible then, then that the letter was copied, even likely that the letter was copied, so it could be sent out and read to the other churches. So to get back to the point, the saints in Ephesus, the reason why I emphasize that is because those two things don't go together. The holy people in the most unholy city. We miss, we, we kind of miss what this is. This would be like saying to the Christians in Iran or to the faithful evangelical believers working at HBO and Disney. Right? You're like, what? I, do, do those exist? Yes. Saints exist in Ephesus. We have to appreciate how hopeless it would seem to build churches in those cities. Indeed, to build a church anywhere, perhaps, in the Roman Empire. And so that's why he calls them faithful to the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Do you see now why faithfulness would be an important thing to mention in the opening part of this letter, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. We are living in faithless days. Days where faith in God itself seems less common. It isn't actually, I think, but it seems that way. 
We're living in days where faithfulness to our word seems really thin. Broken promises, broken marriages, broken families. So what does faithfulness look like in our moment? Well, that's, that's the very question I want to spend the next few months trying to get at and answer uh, with the light given to us by the book of Ephesians. Because what we have to always remember is that as we live out our faith and our obedience to God, uh, what I'm going to call metrics for success, ways to kind of see faithfulness happening, those are important. Because one of the strongest encouragements God can give to His saints is seeing victory over sin over the long arc of our lives. But what will matter most is not whether you can measure it with a metric, but whether or not faithfulness has happened and is happening. Not that, not that you have all the right words to say at the right time. Not that you have the better arguments philosophically than some unbeliever that you're talking to. Not that you outsmarted some fool on social media. Not that you won that argument with your husband or wife. Not that you were right and cared about all the right causes and forms of activism. Not that you had all wisdom and knowledge about earthly and heavenly mysteries. Not that you had every conspiracy theory figured out. And you were the fountain of all truth and knowledge while the other sheep carried on with their miserable lives. The question is, were you faithful? Faithfulness is what we're called to. Faithful with what we're given. So what have you been given? What have you been given? You've been given money? Family? Siblings? An education, children, a house, an apartment, a backyard, a smartphone, a Bible. What have you been given? I mean, kids, children, what, is, what has Jesus given you? Maybe you don't think about that much, but what, what gifts has Jesus given to you? He means for you to use them in love to Him and love of your neighbor. And love of neighbor starts with the neighbors who live with you. Right? Your, your, your brothers and sisters and your mom and dad. So what has Jesus given you, children? Family? Parents? Friends? What are you called to do with that? To love them? To serve them? To pray for them? Mom and dad need prayer just as much as you do. <laughs> just as much as the rest of us. To use that parable of the talents, right? Have, have you invested your master's resources? So do you care for your family? Do you love your neighbors? Do you participate in the work of the body here locally? Do you pray? This is faithfulness. I mean, and, or maybe a better question is, do you want to be? As I've been prattling on and on about faithfulness, is there a longing in your heart that says, I want to be more faithful to what Jesus has given me? Ephesians lays all the foundations that we will need for faithful work in the years ahead, dear saints. Be encouraged. It's all there. And so, having talked about unfaithfulness as our problem and our greatest need to hear from God, the third point is our greatest hope, the grace and peace of God. Let's go to verse 2. Grace to you, Paul says, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You might know, you might have heard before, that Paul is doing two things here. One is a clever play on words. And the other is the uh, combination of two familiar greetings from two different cultures. Let me explain. 
As you probably already know, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And it is often used as a greeting, much like we might say hello or good morning. Shalom means peace as well as uh, uh, well-being, prosperity, wholeness, this sort of thing. In Greek, the common everyday greeting was kairain. That was their hello. It literally means rejoice, which is kind of funny to think about, right? You run into somebody at, the, at, the, at Kroger, you say, rejoice! <laughs> I'm so glad you get to see me, right? <laughs> Aren't you lucky? <laughs> But really, that's the same thing that we mean when we say good morning. We're saying, this is a good morning, right? It's a blessing. I hope it's been good for you. I hope the morning's been a time for you to rejoice. Same kind of idea. So the Greek word is kairain. What Paul's doing here is he's almost saying that. But instead of saying kairain, he misspells it. Not really. He writes charis, which is the Greek word for grace. So what Paul's doing is he's taking a familiar Greek greeting and he's Christianizing it. Instead of saying rejoice, we're going to say grace. He's pairing it together with the Hebrew greeting of peace. Why open this way? Because this is what we need. This is what we need, most of all. The grace and peace of God. It's what the saints at Ephesus needed most. It's what the saints in Alexandria and Pineville need most. How do I know that? Because I know what the opposite of grace and peace looks like. What's the opposite of grace? The opposite of God's overabundant, undeserved kindness. Well, insufficiency, right? Not being enough. Do you lay down at night thinking, I really, I was enough today to accomplish everything I wanted to do? If you, ha- if you do, call me, okay? Because I need to know your secret and get up here and share it with everyone. But no, not being enough, not being strong enough, not being self-controlled enough. Your words got away from you again. Not being wise enough. I was in a situation I didn't know what the right thing to do was. Not being humble enough, not being loving enough, not being smart enough or beautiful enough or holy enough. Everyone is counting on you and I'm failing. Failing to live up to expectations. Failing to make it all balance out. Failing to be all that I want to be. Failing to think of God's will in all this without maybe suppressing that to the corners of my mind. That would be the opposite of grace. What's the opposite of peace? Maddening, unrelenting anxiety. Crippling fear, overwhelming insecurity, the kind of unsettledness that not only haunts you, but if you are honest, at times paralyzes you, keeps you stuck, unable to move forward, even afraid to do so. Do you now get a sense of why Paul might have opened, why the first words out of his mouth after the introduction are grace and peace to you? saints in Ephesus. Do we need to look much further than our own culture, even at times our own lives, our own state, our own neighborhoods, even our own families, to know what it looks like when grace and peace are not present? In fact, when you read through Paul's letters, you will discover that most of them start this way. Most of them begin with grace and peace to you. 
And interestingly enough, most of them end with grace and peace be with you. What's that about? Grace and peace to you at the start. Grace and peace be with you at the end. Almost every single Pauline letter. It's because, remember what he said at first, Paul an apostle, Paul with God's words. And so what he's saying is, grace is about to come to you, dear listeners of this letter, dear readers. Grace is about to come to you by way of the very words of God. It's going then to stay with you after you read and leave. John Piper puts it this way. I don't think I could put it any better. He says, at the beginning of his letters, Paul has in mind that the letter itself is a channel of God's grace to the readers. Grace is about to flow from God through Paul's writings to the Christians. So he says, grace to you. That is, grace is now active and is about to flow from God through my inspired writing to you as you read, grace be to you. But as the, letter, as the end of the letter approaches, Paul realizes that the reading is almost finished and the question arises, what becomes of the grace that has been flowing to the readers through the reading of the inspired letter? He answers with the blessing at the end of every letter. Grace be with you. With you as you put this letter away and leave the church. With you as you go home to deal with a sick child and an unaffectionate spouse. With you as you go to work and face the temptations of anger and dishonesty and lust. With you as you muster courage to speak up for Christ over lunch. With you. Do you see why we gather week in and week out for corporate worship? Do you see why the Word of God is always at the center of our worship service? Why we often call one another to be about the ordinary work of reading the Bible? Because every time we hear the word together or when we're alone, God means for grace to flow to us as we read and hear and learn and feast together. And at the end of our worship, we close with a benediction, a blessing that you might carry that grace and peace of God with you as you go out because it is, it is what you will need most in the fight. So, do you want the grace and peace of God? Well, then come along as we study Ephesians together. There are in this short little letter all the fundamentals of the Christian life that will steady us in hard times and strengthen us with everything we need for life and godliness and neighbor love and glad songs together and even, yes, even hope for the future. For you have not been given permission to despair because of what Jesus Christ has done. He's died on the cross and He's risen again and all who trust in Him receive that death as their own. Do you know what that means? It means that the troubled, contorted, confused, messed up, insufficient, sinful, hateful, bitter mess that you are, you are not waiting for God to do something about that version of you. That version of you, dear saint, has already been crucified. It's already been buried. And three days later, your Lord Jesus raised up the new you, but the old one stayed dead. Are you tired then of life in the void, far away from the grace and peace of God? He bids you come and welcome today. Grace to you 
and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And so, our Father, we ask, indeed, for grace and peace that would come flowing to us through your word. Pray as we explore the letter of Ephesians together by your servant, the Apostle Paul, that we would indeed be blessed, that we would indeed be equipped for all that we need in the days, in the weeks, in the months, and years to come, all to the glory of Jesus, our Savior. In his name we ask it. Amen.